Thank you for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the emergency medicine podcast recorded at Dream, Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. In this episode, we will be discussing postpartum hemorrhage. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording. Any guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello, it's uh, me, Jamie, still one of the teacher fellows in emergency medicine. Um, and it's me, Anna, one of the um, specialty registrars in gynaecology. So, uh, thank you, Anna, for coming or staying, because we've just <laughs> done the, uh, the antipartum uh, podcast. We're now going to do postpartum uh, hemorrhage podcast, again, assuming I know nothing. Um, Anna, what is the definition of a postpartum hemorrhage? Uh, so, it is, by ne- definition, the blood loss of more than 500 mils after delivery of the baby. Um, but actually, if you spent any time on labour ward, then you would probably see that then most of our women end up having a postpartum hemorrhage because actually the blood loss of 500 mils is not that unusual. So whilst that is a postpartum hemorrhage, the ones that we really worry about are the ones that have lost more than a litre or more than 1.5 litres as they're the ones that are going to run into significant problems or they're going to be unwell. Mm. Most pregnant women, um, unless they've had a problem, for example, like anemia in the pregnancy, are geared up to lose blood. And so most pregnant women can lose 500 mils and actually they won't notice mm. that at all. And that's just that's because in pregnancy you have more circulating blood volume mm. essentially. So uh, that's nature's way. <laughs> <laughs> nature's always so clever. Um, so it's not always serious then, postpartum hemorrhage. It might be dramatic for the, for the patient, but yeah. not, not so dramatic for us. Yeah, so it can certainly appear dramatic, because actually 500 mils of blood is still quite a lot of blood. Mm. Um, and so for somebody who isn't used to that kind of thing, um, then certainly that can appear quite concerning. Um, but actually, as I say, for most women, they won't even really notice that. They won't even mount a tachycardia or anything um, and they'll be well and most of them won't even then become significantly anemic following that either okay. um, so no not always <laughs> desperately serious is there a, a time limit with from the delivery afterwards that we include postpartum hemorrhage in, in or so it can be divided into two categories yeah. so we it can be primary postpartum hemorrhage which is in the first 24 hours after birth or yeah. secondary postpartum hemorrhage which can occur up to 6 weeks after the birth the vast majority of the um, pphs we see are at primary within the first and that's normally like instantly within the first hour or two after delivery Mm. that that happens okay so a working uh, an an insight into the workings of the podcast Anna emailed kindly emailed me some questions beforehand and I'm really excited about this next question because it says (laughs) what are the causes of PPH and then in brackets you've put four T's so I'm, everyone, I'm, I'm very keen to hear what this is. So everyone loves a good way of uh, remembering the causes. And actually Definitely. this is one that we use all the time. And so if I ever walk into like a PPH scenario, I'm just always thinking in the back of my mind, what are the four T's? Mm. So this uh, it specifically relates to primary postpartum hemorrhage. And essentially is that there are four main reasons why someone could bleed. And they don't actually all begin with T, but we have to make them fit to T because oh, it's a four T. How yeah. annoying! <laughs> so the first one is uh, tone. So when we say that, it's, it's tone of the uterus, but actually it's specifically 
atony, as in, so after the delivery, what mm. should happen is the uterus should contract. Mm. That contraction stops then the bleeding. It compresses all of the blood vessels within the placental bed, and the bleeding therefore stops. If the uterus doesn't contract down for any reason, then bleeding can continue. Mm. Um, so that's tone. Um, the second T is trauma. Um, so that could be any trauma, so it could have been um, vaginal trauma from a forceps delivery or a tear, for example, but it could also have been a caesarean delivery, and so trauma related to, to that. The third T is tissue, um, which then relates to the placenta. So this is what I mean. So it's a T, but... Okay, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm so, still with you. Yeah. But, so tissue, and that specifically relates to the placenta, more specifically, that the placenta is retained. So it could be that the entire placenta is retained, and that means that you end up with bleeding related to that. Or it could be that part of the placenta is retained inside the uterus, and so you get bleeding. And the last T is thrombin, to make you think of either is there a primary reason, primary um, kind of haemophilia, for example, why somebody is predisposed to bleeding, or they have a clotting disorder, a platelet disorder. Or, if they've lost a significant amount of blood for one of the aforementioned three causes, then is thrombin becoming an issue? Are they having developing DIC, for example? So, tone, trauma, tissue and thrombin. Yes. Excellent. Very, very good. The four T's. Yeah. Excellent. I'm a big believer in, let's not make medicine harder than it has to be. I like a good mnemonic. So yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so, you've got those four T's going through your mind, yep. and I do now as well. Um, so what investigations will you be performing for your lady? So I think the thing that, um, well, to be said during any kind of PPH scenario is kind of class, it's class as an obstetric emergency if someone's bleeding. So what will tend to happen is that actually everything's kind of happening at once. Mm. There's lots of people involved in doing things. So we can take them like by investigations and then management, but actually in reality everything's kind of happening together. Mm. Um, with lots of different people within that team having like different roles. So there's an MDT approach? Yeah, definitely, because you've got, um, obviously on the lay board, you're going to have doctors and midwives, there'll be um, anaesthetists involved, and if you've got someone that's having a massive PPH, then you need the haematology services, porters, mm. the blood bank need to be alerted to a massive obstetric haemorrhage, so there could be lots of people involved in managing that one woman, and mm. lots of things kind of happening at the same time. Okay. Um, so, what was the question again? Uh, <laughs> the so investigation. The, the first question was uh, sort yeah. of investigation and your management, so... Yeah, so investigations-wise, um, then I suppose part of that is trying to think about what the cause is. So with those four T's in the back of your mind, you're kind of investigating and examining and managing kind of at the same time. So we'd want to, um, you know, have a look and see how much blood there was losing make sure that we're keeping hold of that so that we can weigh it so that we've got more of an actual blood loss rather mm. than an estimated um someone wants to examine the the lady's abdomen and check see where the if the uterus is well contracted or in fact if it's lacking in tone you, you might be able to feel that by examining her abdomen um whilst you're doing that what we then often do is rub the uterus to make it contract so um just by stimulating the uterus makes the the uterus contract down so we'll kind of be doing that at the same time um, it, if the lady hasn't already got um, IV access then you want to cite that 
um, and take blood tests at the same time. So those kind of investigations would be kind of so being So standard taken. bleeding bloods. Standard bleeding get bloods. big cannula access. That yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we kind of tend not to go for anything less than a grey in obstetrics. So it's like if you try and find a green cannula on label or whatever, no, you never find one. You can only like a grey or an orange. It's because the flow rate through the grey cannula mm. is the same as what you could potentially like lose from the uterus. Uh, apparently yeah. so I'm told so basically a wide bore cannula because you want to basically give fluids quickly you know these are young normally healthy women that actually they're bleeding a lot you want to replace quickly you don't need to really worry about you know dripping it through really slowly mm. through a, a pink cannula mm. so the grey cannula is a badge of honour somewhat in the emergency department so it's, oh, really? it's very impressive that you're all a dab hand with the grey cannula upstairs. Oh no, I think it's more, everyone's, uh, <laughs> the midwives and the doctors that work on labour ward wouldn't be able to cite, cite a small cannula, it would be too fiddly. <laughs> we've really digressed from the... We, uh, we have really digressed, so sorry, so you've got a right. big... So we've got, got a big cannula, cannula. Yeah. and we've, um, we've taken our bloods and we have to think about whether or not we want a group and save or do we want a cross match. Yeah. Um, Obviously, if someone's bleeding an awful lot, then you want to cross-match, and you want to cross-match four or six units um, because blood loss from a PPH can be really very rapid. Mm. So you can lose you know, a litre or so within five minutes. That wouldn't be that unusual from, for a big PPH. Um, you've got your use knees and your clotting, for example, that you know, standard bleeding bloods, as you call them. <laughs> Um, other investigations that we'd need would then depend on what the, what's going on with the cause of the bleeding. So yeah. I mentioned that we'd want to examine the patient, see where the uterus was. You'd also probably want to examine vaginally. Mm. So I mean, we're assuming in this situation the lady's had a vaginal delivery, she's not had a caesarean, for mm. example. We'd want to see if there's any trauma. Mm. Um, and if there is, we would then stitch any trauma, stop any bleeding that we could see. Um, from trauma to the lower genital tract mm. um, someone needs to check the placenta is complete I mean it may be obvious the placenta is entirely still inside and in which case we need to think about moving to theatre to remove the placenta mm. it may be that um, the placenta is uh, been um, expelled by the mother but actually when someone looks at it it's obvious that there's a bit of the placenta that's missing and that's likely to be the cause and in that case again we need to think about removing that in order to stop the bleeding mm. um, so this is what I mean like things kind of tend to happen like not in the kind of the standard nice planned order it all kind of happens together and you're taking you're thinking of the causes as you go through and managing each one as you come across it mm. so I suppose you know it sounds like it's a very you know it's a rapid very intense experience um, are there any risk factors so are there any ways of knowing that your lady might have a greater chance of having a postpartum hemorrhage then if it's obviously such a big event so that you need to Yes. Quickly. Yeah, so there are risk factors that we, we know of and obviously in that case we can sometimes modify those risk factors. So um, things that increase the risk of there being a problem with the tone of the uterus are anything that have increased the size of the uterus bigger than what you would normally expect. So for example, uh, someone has a multiple pregnancy, mm. they have a higher risk that the uterus is so, it's so stretched that then it doesn't contract that back down properly, so they have a higher risk of an atonic PPH. Um, 
there's things like having an excess of amniotic fluid around the baby we call that polyhydramnios again for the same reasons as having a multiple pregnancy mm-hmm. um, if somebody has uh, been in labor for a long time so the uterus is tired so that might be that they've um, they've just happened to be in labor for a long time or maybe they were induced in labor or their labor needed to be augmented that is make they weren't progressing very well so mm. they needed to have medication to make the contractions speed up mm. um, all of those things increase the risk of PPH um, if someone has had the, a type of delivery that increases the risk of trauma so if they're having a cesarean delivery or they're having a forceps or a vontus so, so any kind of instrumental delivery they're at higher risk mm-hmm. um, the thrombin ish thing coming back to the 40s is obvious if they've known to have a bleeding disorder then we know that they have a higher risk and there may be things that we can give them antenatally or immediately postnatally to try and reduce the risk of them bleeding depending they might, on they might well have been seen in the hematology absolutely yeah. uh, so antenatal clinic as well often are. If they were known. Yeah. yeah if it was known they often are and they'll often have a plan and that kind of is complicated and goes beyond the scope of the normal kind mm. of PPH but they will maybe have a plan about certain blood products that um, are required to be given to them depending on what their bleeding disorder is mm. um, and then other risk factors the other one that we always talk about is having had an antepartum hemorrhage so if someone's bled during labor or they've had recurrent antepartum bleeds they are more likely to have a postpartum hemorrhage as well mm. um, the reasons for that not entirely clear but probably if they've had like a small abruption for example um, they've already they probably um, already lost some kind of glossing products mm. um, and it's possible in that situation the uterus doesn't kind of contract down as well mm-hmm. so we always just say it's like one of those things antepartum hemorrhage equals postpartum hemorrhage so you just tend to be very aware of it and mm. give them medication more medication postnatally than you routinely would to try and reduce the risk of it happening mm. and that's true of like all the things we've mentioned um any kind of risk factor really of, of for for bleeding mm. you'd want to make sure after the baby was delivered we were actively managing the delivery of the placenta that is to give them medication to encourage the uterus to contract mm. um not um leaving things to to nature mm. um, we'd want to kind of actively manage them mm. so it's a bit like um, hyperemesis gravidarum in the podcast we did if you've had that before you're at risk of getting it again so it's, it's if you've had antipartum hemorrhaging you're at risk of, so yeah and if you've had a postpartum hemorrhage in the past then you're a higher risk of home postpartum hemorrhage again <laughs> as is standard the case so again if that had been picked up if in a previous yeah. pregnancy then again you'd want to manage the preg- the um delivery of the placenta actively with medication rather mm. than leaving um things to nature so you should as in like in a normal delivery where there's no other risk factors it's possible for the mother to choose what's called a physiological third stage and that is the baby kind of goes to the breast to produce natural oxytocin mm. um you you don't cut the uh, the cord you don't clamp and cut the cord and you don't give any medication you just wait for the placenta to separate naturally it's called a physiological third stage mm. so that is possible in women that don't have any other risk factors but you wouldn't choose that in all of the things we've mentioned because mm. you'd there would be a higher risk of that, that mother having a postpartum hemorrhage. Shows again that you cannot get away from a good history and you know 
with any patient, any problem, particularly you know, pregnant lady going back on previous pregnancies if there are yeah. any and, and getting a very good history. And of course in um, obstetrics particularly a vast majority of what we do is risk modification because mm. we actually are identifying prior risks and trying to modify those risks in the current pregnancy and that's actually a lot of what we do and postpartum hemorrhage is no exception to that. And um, you mentioned about multiple pregnancies, so does that mean um, triplets more give you bigger risk than twins? Does it go up with more um, with more um, babies, or is it just? I don't know the actual numbers on that actually, but probably you can yeah. kind of imagine that if you've kind of the you've got a whole litter, <laughs> then <laughs> the uterus is like you know the the more distended the uterus is, the yeah. higher risk that the uterus is not going to um, go back down to mm. and not contract properly. Mm. Um, Often, however, triplets, for example, are delivered prematurely, and so mm. whether or not the uterus is more distended than a pair okay. of term twins, mm. not sure. Any kind of multiple pregnancy essentially increases the chance of atony. Learning. There's one thing that we should probably Ooh. talk about before we go on to what happens afterwards, and that is we haven't actually talked about the management much of, okay. apart from stitching the trauma mm. and removing the placenta and treating any weird and wonderful kind of bleeding disorders, mm. the, by far and away the most common cause of, um, of PPH is uterine atony. Um, so we've touched on a bit about the management of that, but I wonder if we should just say a bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the beginning, in the end, like, what we said at the beginning when you're first assessing the woman, you're feeling where the uterus is, making sure it's contracted, rub the uterus to encourage the uterus to contract. Um, but then if that doesn't work, we need to think about what other things we can do. Mm. Um, so there's something called bimanual compression, uh, which is essentially an examina- a vaginal examination where you try and squeeze the uterus between your two hands. So that's difficult to kind of try and describe in a podcast, but essentially you're trying to kind of compress the uterus between your hands. Mm. That encourages it to contract, um, encourages the bleeding from that. Um, if there's like open blood vessels in the uterus, it, it compresses them and, and therefore stops the bleeding. Um, that's quite difficult to do for a prolonged period of time because it, it's really quite difficult on the examining hands and it's very uncomfortable for the woman if she doesn't have an epidural. Mm-hmm. So we want to start thinking about medication that will make the uterus contract. Um, and some of those things are given routinely as part of management of delivering the placenta. So um, IM injections of something called syntocinon, which is synthetic oxytocin, um, or sometimes we give something called syntometrin which is a combination drug between syntocinon and ergometrin. So they can, they can just be used like routinely to mm-hmm. actively manage um, the placental delivery. We can also give um, intravenous infusions of syntocinon. Mm-hmm. And then there are other medications um, if, the, if they fail to work, things like misoprostol, carboprost. Um, they can be used to make the uterus contract. So we're having all those in our mind and we'll use those in a stepwise fashion, starting off with the simple ones and then kind of working up to the carboprost, for example, misoprostol. Mm. Um, If they fail to work, so if you've given all the uh, medical treatment that you could and the uterus is still bleeding, the uterus still remains atonic then we have to start thinking about moving to theatre at that point or even or even sooner than that, depending on how much blood she's lost, and thinking of a surgical approach. Um, so in theatre, 
an examination under an anaesthetic, checking again there's no bits of placenta left mm. behind, checking that there's no obvious tears, uh, you know, higher up in the genital tract that perhaps we weren't able to see. Um, but then thinking about the atony, we can put something called a, b- a Bacri balloon, or there's various different types of them. So an interuterine balloon, essentially, that you blow up with water inside the uterus. And that seems a bit counterintuitive, that you're trying to get something to contract and then you put a big balloon in and blow it up with 500 mils of water. <laughs> seems a bit kind of counterintuitive, but essentially what you're doing is you're putting pressure on the bleeding vessels from the inside in the same way as you would put pressure on a wound on your skin. Mm. Um, and that works really well. Mm. Um, and that stays then inside for about 24 hours whilst the other medication has chance to work and then it's removed. Um, if that doesn't work and you know they're still bleeding, then at that point we have to think about more complicated approaches, uh, doing a laparotomy, thinking about um, ligating the internal iliac vessels. Um, we can put sutures around the uterus to help it stay contracted. And then if that still fails to work, the last ditch attempt is a hysterectomy. But that would be very unusual for it to get to that mm. stage that's very much last line that would be very last line yeah that you'd need to do that um but is not unheard of i've seen it a few times but normally the, you normally see it more in patients where you know that they're a really high risk of having um, a pph because they've got some kind of placental problem mm. um so you know we've mentioned um placenta previa in the aph podcast there are other placental problems where something called placental accreta where the placenta is too deeply adherent to the uterus so it doesn't actually separate away as it should um, those women are at a very high risk of bleeding and so in, even in some cases there you might actually deliver the baby electively by caesarean and then electively do a hysterectomy mm. because the risk of actually delivering the placenta and the risk of bleeding would be so high so when you're talking about hysterectomy because of PPH, it's normally because of those kind of placental issues. Mm. Okay. So um, afterwards, yep. and uh, the bleeding is stopped, and, and we're happy, mother is stable, yep. where will mother and baby be going? Um, well, it will depend on how much blood they've lost. Um, if it was actually relatively minor and mother as well, then there's no reason why she couldn't be looked after on the labour ward or back up onto the postnatal ward. Obviously, if she's lost a significant amount of blood, um, she's you know required multiple blood product transfusions, for example, or she's we're still at significant risk of bleeding more. She's become um, kind of very unwell. Then it may be that she needs to go to the intensive care unit for a period of time. Um, the important thing, I suppose, is that we do try as much as we can to keep the mother and the baby together. Mm. But that's not always possible if the mother's had to go to the intensive care unit. But otherwise, we would try and keep them together. Um, in so that's important in those bonding. early days of yeah, bonding. That's <laughs> um, important to try and do that if we can. And I suppose, like you said earlier, um, PPH. If you had, a, there's a risk then of subsequent in subsequent pregnancies and deliveries. So you you would have to counsel the patient about about that then as well once this was all sorted. Yeah, absolutely. So um, depending on what the causes were, um, then there is a risk of a PPH happening again. Mm. It may be that there is something which has been kind of 
obvious about this delivery that why they've had a PPH and it's unlikely that that's going to be replicated in a subsequent pregnancy so for example they've had a cesarean delivery of their triplets mm. um, and in the subs- and they had a PPH and if in a subsequent pregnancy they have a, a singleton baby and they have a normal delivery that they're less likely to have a normal uh, to have a PPH but yeah in general mm. if you've had a, P- a PPH we would just we would advise them that they're at increased risk in the future. Well, thank you very much for coming down, Anna. I'll let You're you welcome. Get back upstairs into the world of light and fresh air <laughs> from the emergency department. Thank you. But uh, thank you so much. Welcome. Bye bye. Bye. That was the Take Orally Postpartum Hemorrhage podcast. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, where we'll put up links to any guidelines mentioned, and you can contact us to suggest topics you'd like to see covered in future episodes. For more information on education and research opportunities within emergency medicine, acute medicine and major trauma, you can find NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.